You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the role religion has played in Russia's war against Ukraine. How has Russia used the Orthodox Church to influence life in Ukraine? And how did Russia react when Ukraine wanted to establish its own independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church? How has the Russian Orthodox Church and its leaders justified the invasion of Ukraine? And what effect has all of this had on Orthodox Christianity around the world? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting with Dr. Nicholas Denisenko. He is the author of the book, The Church's Unholy War, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine and Orthodoxy. He is also the author of the Revealer article, Ukraine's Orthodox Churches as a Battleground in Russia's Invasion, which you can find in the November 2023 issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Nick. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, Brett. I'm doing very well. Thank you. And it's a real pleasure to be here. Of course. Well, to get us started, I'd like to ask a couple of broad questions about Ukraine and Russia before we delve into the war. I'm wondering if you can start by giving us an overview of the place of religion in Ukraine. President Zelensky is Jewish, but I'm assuming that is an outlier. Is the country primarily affiliated with Orthodox Christianity? And how central or peripheral is religion to Ukrainian life? That's an excellent question. I want to share a story with you on what I experienced when I traveled to Ukraine in March of 2016, which was my first trip there following first few years of independent Ukraine. In 1993, I made a trip to Ukraine with my brother and grandfather only two years after Ukraine had declared independence. So very much in the shadow of the fall of the Soviet Union. Sure. In an emigre community, we had been raised with real religious devotion. Hmm. There were posters and cards and calendars that had the beautiful golden domed cathedrals of Kyiv, uh, Lviv, and other cities depicted on them. And hmm. when we traveled to Ukraine, I thought, you know, when the plane lands and we're in the taxi and we're going to the place that we're staying, I'll see crosses and gold domes. And it, it really wasn't like that at all. Hmm. And so when I returned in 2016, I kind of braced myself for a reminder that religious life is vibrant in some places in Ukraine. But I had learned that lesson mm -hmm. of the Soviet period and mm -hmm. its attempt to diminish religious life in Ukraine. So the way that religion uh, is practiced and its vibrancy kind of varies by region. There's a concentration of real religious devotion in uh, West Ukraine, particularly in the region of Galicia, which is where you have a strong multi-religious presence. And just for an example, I took a group of students from Loyola Marymount University to Lviv in the spring of 2016. 
Okay. And before we would begin our sessions, I would always take a morning walk and I would walk up and down the city streets. And really early in the morning, around um, 6 to 7 a.m., you could walk into any number of churches. They would be Roman Catholic, Ukrainian Greco-Catholic, Hmm. Ukrainian Orthodox, different Orthodox churches, hmm. some belonging to the Russian Orthodox Church, some independent of the Russian Orthodox Church, and they would have services. Hmm. And on the same walk, you could uh, find a synagogue, an hmm. Armenian church, hmm. and on that trip we met people who were from Crimea, who had established a mosque in a room in an apartment building. Huh. And so there was a real sense of uh, people of various religions concentrated in one area. And you could literally experience all of that on a morning walk, I guess, if you did so intentionally, um, which I was doing. Sure. Places like West Ukraine, Galicia, there's a real religious concentration. Religious devotion is high. It's similar to Poland in that regard. But there are other places in Ukraine, for example, in rural areas where there's one church for one village. Hmm. And in some places in eastern Ukraine and in southern Ukraine, where Soviet oppression had been a little bit more ardent and rigorous, mm -hmm. there is a lower concentration of religious devotion. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think that I would say is, as a multi-religious country, some say the most religiously diverse country in Europe, hmm. Ukraine Ukrainians self-identify as Orthodox up to 60 to 70 percent, depending on the survey that you're looking at. Hmm. So another example of this is Zelensky, as you said, who is Jewish. Yeah. Uh, he knows that when he makes public appeals, he knows how to use language that will be familiar with the Orthodox population. Hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, last year on Orthodox Easter, the message that he sent to the Orthodox people, or really to all people of Ukraine, really sounded like it was written by someone who had grown up and knew the language and the rhythms like they were fish and water of the Orthodox Church. Yeah. So that's how important it is. Um, but there's also an awareness among Ukrainian people that it is a religiously diverse country and um, that they need to always navigate that religious diversity carefully. So in your article for the Revealers November issue, you offer a really helpful overview of the historical and cultural connections between Ukraine and Russia. So our listeners have a sense of some of this. Briefly, how would you describe the historical connections that Ukraine and Russia share? Yes, this is a oft-asked question, and it's such an important one, because President Vladimir Putin of the Russian Federation in July 2021 published an essay that he wrote, essentially claiming that Ukrainians and Russians are the same people in the same nation. Hmm. Uh, and so this raises questions among people as to why is all of this ha um, why is all of this happening? Yeah. When if they're essentially the same people of the same faith, um, certainly they have commonalities the origins of the modern states of uh you or the modern peoples i should say of ukraine 
Belarus and Russia hmm. are the medieval city-states of Rus. Hmm. And I think that sometimes when we think of Rus, we think of like this strongly united entity, but these are city-states. These are tribes where a prince establishes a principality with a limited geographical territory. Hmm. And the most important city of the city-states in the 10th century was the city of Kiev, hmm. pronounced Kiev in Russian. Yeah. Yeah. And so Russians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians trace our ancestry to Kiev because it was the most prestigious city, hmm. but also because that was the birthplace where the Grand Prince Volodymyr baptized the residents of the city of Kiev, the citizens of this city-state into the Orthodox faith inherited from uh, Constantinople in the year 988. Hmm. So uh, even if the tribes of uh, other principalities, such as Vladimir Suzdal, as an example, came into conflict with Kiev or even acted aggressively towards Kiev uh, during this medieval period, they all understood that they had a common Orthodox faith that originated from that uh, hmm. baptismal event in July of 988. Got it. Um, what's important within this is that actual Russian identity itself is much more strongly connected to the rise of Moscow in the 14th century. Hmm. Um, so where you have this sort of ancestral orthodox beginnings of cave and its baptism, Moscow becomes uh, the most dominant player on the map only in the 14th century. So you don't really have a strong tie between Russians and Ukrainians. It, it, it really begins to take shape in the 17th century with two events. The first event is when Ukrainians are resisting the oppression that they sensed in terms of access to education, property ownership, Orthodox minority rights in the Polish Catholic Kingdom, uh -huh. and turn to the Russian Tsar to make a treaty with them for protection hmm. so that they would be able to maintain their identity. And it was largely based on faith, and that was in the year 1654. Okay. And then the next step is taken in 1686 when the Russian monarchy, along with the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church, demands that Constantinople give to Moscow, to Russia, jurisdiction of the Orthodox population that was supervised by the bishop in Kiev, hmm. which was initially resisted by the bishop in Kiev. And so this encounter really begins in the 17th century, and it's a mixture, because on the one hand, Russian rulers, monarchical rulers, valued the education, the sophistication, particularly in um, arts that the Ukrainians had learned during the period of the Catholic Reformation and their encounter with places like Poland, hmm. Czechos what we would think of today as Czechoslovakia. One might even extend that to Vienna and to Italy. Hmm. On the other hand, as the Russian monarchs attempted to solidify the unity of the Russian Empire, 
and especially its autonomous national minorities, their rulers beginning in the 18th century began to repress the cultural expressions, the rights, the identity markers, such as language, of people like Ukrainians. Interesting. I'm wondering if we can build on some of that and look at the two countries and religion. So how did Russia use the Orthodox Church to maintain a strong presence in Ukraine for the past several decades? A sense of history is helpful here. So Orthodoxy is different from the Roman Catholic Church, where you always had a a powerful authoritative figure and the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. Right. Uh, orthodoxy, the, the people of Orthodoxy, they tend to really stress and emphasize regional autonomy. Hmm. And they had identified during the imperial period, and, and here I have in mind the period of the Byzantine Empire, the church that was centered in Constantinople hmm. as as kind of like the first among all equals, the person who could convene meetings, who could occasionally adjudicate disputes if they occurred, but but not having the same degree or high level of authority that the Bishop of Rome as the Pope would have over the whole church because there was so much respect for this regional autonomy. Mm, Got it. And what happened was when the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottomans in the year 1453, the Church of Constantinople sort of retained its historical connection that it had been associated with as having these privileges. But there was a vacuum and the, the, the really strong orthodox empire that remained intact was the russian empire Hmm. and so the russian orthodox church moved fairly quickly to uh, ascend and to attempt to assert its identity its rights as as being equal to that of some of the other older churches within the orthodox church Hmm. so for example in the year 1589 they uh, requested that the Church of Constantinople give them the dignity of being a patriarchate, which would give them a higher rank, a higher level of prestige within orthodoxy. And so the, the reason I'm mentioning this is, is for, first of all, Constantinople granted them this dignity. And secondly, it was already then in the 16th century that the patriarchate of the Russian Orthodox Church became a powerful church center. Hmm. And that made them a magnet uh, because you have the Tsar of Russia, the monarchy being this protector of Orthodox peoples. The Russian Orthodox Church then was able to, for example, less, uh, just almost 100 years later, arrange for Constantinople to give them the privilege of appointing the leader, which is called the Metropolitan of the of the Orthodox Church in Kiev, which the Russians interpreted as assuming jurisdiction over mm. the entirety of the church in Kiev. Mm. But Constantinople uh, asserted was, was simply the right to uh, ordain or appoint. But what happened was that, that that move at the end of the 17th century essentially permitted or facilitated 
the absorption of the Ukrainian church, its educational institutions, the way that the, that the people in parishes uh, celebrated their rituals and their rites, it, it facilitated them becoming part of the larger Russian Orthodox structure. Got it. And so that was one way in which this was done. And when the October Revolution took place, civil war, and you have Bolshevik persecution of the church, it very briefly disrupted this Russian hegemony over the Ukrainian church until the Bolsheviks essentially persecuted all Orthodox and reduced church life to being barely existent in the Soviet Union until 1943 during World War II when Stalin, realizing that he needed to find other allies, identify, appoint allies to help hmm. to promote national fervor, mm -hmm. granted rights that had been taken away from the Russian Orthodox Church. He allowed them to open some seminaries, to resume church life, hmm. to ordain priests. Hmm. And when that happened, this is, and this is really crucial, after World War II, especially in that Cold War period, mm -hmm. The Russian church became very useful to the Soviet regime. Hmm. And first of all, the Soviet leadership wanted the Russian church to be an important player in the international arena. Hmm. So, for example, in the World Council of Churches, as defenders of civil rights, of religious freedoms, to promote the Soviet propaganda that the Soviet Union was for the emancipation of workers, for internationalization. Practically speaking, by reopening some seminaries and by very tightly controlling the leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church, not only in what we would think of today as Russia proper, but also in Ukraine and Belarus and in other countries where you have Orthodox minorities, they would often cultivate and train the leadership in the seminary that was open, that was just outside of Moscow, the Trinity St. Sergius Seminary. The leaders of the church in Ukraine would essentially be formed in a place, in a space, and by professors who had a sort of a, a political agenda to make sure that when they would rule, over church life, that they would do so in such a way that would keep the natives at bay. And so one clever way of doing this would be to appoint bishops who are fluent in Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. So when they would talk to the people, uh, when they would interact with them, when they would perform baptisms and weddings and funerals, they could speak the native Ukrainian language. Mm -hmm. But when it came to any attempt for Ukrainians to assert their rights, these bishops were loyal mm. to the leadership in Moscow. And so this essentially remained intact until the very end of the Soviet era, beginning in 1989, when Gorbachev, in an attempt to signal and you know preserve the Soviet Union, to keep it from collapsing, yeah started to grant even more religious rights and legalize the return of churches that had been illegal, mm. which immediately in December of 1989 and throughout 1990 challenged this 
dominance, this hegemony of the Russian Orthodox Church, in particular in Ukraine. And in this hot spot that I mentioned at the beginning, Galicia, where you have people who had this memory that, hey, once we were Greek Catholic, once we belonged to an independent, truly Ukrainian church, and then thousands of parishes then say, we're not going to be part of the Russian Orthodox Church anymore. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to uh, be Greek Catholic again, or we're going to be Ukrainian Orthodox. Mm. So that control then was disrupted by this loosening of the reins, but it was the tightening of the reins, the attempt to uphold uh, and establish a system where the government was working together with church leaders, granting them just enough freedom to keep them loyal during that Cold War period that Russia was able to maintain such a song, strong presence in Ukraine, not only during the Soviet period, but even beyond it, because those leaders remained in power and they hadn't forgotten their training. They were able to adapt to circumstances to a certain degree, but they were still part of the Russian Orthodox Church structures. Mm -hmm. And so when, it, when the question came as to where do your loyalties lie, many of them maintained loyalty to the Russian Orthodox Church. That, I think, is a good way to transition to the next thing that I want to ask you that I've learned from reading your book and article which is then when Ukraine tries to establish its own independent Orthodox Church, I believe in, in 2018, and the backlash that ensues and in some ways becomes a precursor to the uh, 2022 invasion. So could you talk a bit then about why the creation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine in, I believe, 2018 so badly insulted and aggravated the Russian Orthodox Church? Absolutely, yes. I'm going to give you an example that I think people can relate to on an everyday basis, and it's, it's a sad example. It's the kind of thing that happens in an extended family when a married couple or a family unit announces that there's going to be a separation or a divorce because of events that have took place or grievances, and people in the family don't understand, hey, I didn't know that this person's husband or this person's wife was so upset. I thought that everything was okay. We didn't know that they felt this way about us. Yeah. And they feel betrayed. Why do they want to leave our family? We've only treated you well. Mm. I, I wanted to use that illustration of a family because I think on the Russian side of things that uh, many Russians rank and file Orthodox Russians in Russia and even outside of Russia simply didn't know that Ukrainians had a, an accumulation of grievances over a period of time. Hmm. And really the main grievance was about language. Hmm. Ukrainians beginning in 1917 wanted to use their own native language for the liturgy. And that was kind of the first, you know, fault line in Ukrainian Russian relations really in that beginning portion of the 20th century is that Ukrainians saying, we want to worship in Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. And the Russians forced the matter on them that, no, you can only pray in church Slavonic with Russian pronunciation. And even when they relented in 1921 by issuing a decree saying if two-thirds of a parish wants to worship in Ukrainian, there's no real evidence that they ever actually activated that mechanism for parishes to be able to 
take a vote and make that decision. Hmm. So over over decades of kind of starts and stops of Ukrainians essentially saying, we're we have our own legitimate Orthodox Church with our own tradition, and we're going to be independent. It's in 2018, not coincidentally, I don't think, four years, really five, five, four to five years after the Maidan Revolution of Dignity and Russian aggression, first in Crimea and then in Donbass, mm-hmm. that President Poroshenko announces that he has an agreement with who else but this church that I mentioned before of Constantinople that's going to create a legitimate Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Mm. And here's where I think that that Russians kind of took insult and were aggravated by the creation of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. From their perspective, they didn't understand why it was necessary mm-hmm. for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to be its own independent church. They believed this narrative of Russia and Ukraine and Belarus being one people. They were being told in the media that our enemies are the ones who are doing this. You know, uh, the American government wants to diminish and to weaken the Russian Federation. So they're fueling this nationalistic fire Hmm. in Ukraine to the point of supporting the creation of an Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And by the way, just incidentally, during that time, right before all of this was formalized and finalized, the creation of this church, mm-hmm. uh, the secretary, then Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo issued very terse statements declaring his support for religious freedom and for independence in uh, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. It was an attempt for, I think, for the American government to kind of signal that it was supporting it. But Russians saw that as a clear conspiracy. And there are others who saw it that way, too. Yeah. And so when they actually went forward and did it, and they did it only because the Church of Constantinople agreed to kind of lead the way and organize and see the whole process through, and it was a necessary process. They saw that as a conspiracy that was Ukrainians who created this Orthodox Church joining traditional Russian enemies. Hmm. And those enemies included the United States of America. And this is a perception, by the way. So you have to be very clear, this is a perception. And the Constantinople obviously receiving some kind of political favor from America. Again, this is part of the perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Ukrainians themselves actually going forward and doing it and creating their own independent church was seen as a rejection of Russia, a betrayal, a- apostasy. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know that the Ukrainians had these grievances about the russification of church life and wanted to create their own independent church. And I think it's really important to emphasize here that on December 15th, 2018, after they had convened this meeting, this council in St. Sophia Church in Cave, a historic building, much beloved, kind of a, a national shrine that is, uh, has eye recognition and, and the visual culture mm-hmm. of Orthodox people throughout the world, Poroshenko himself 
had participated in this meeting. And he delivered public remarks after the meeting outside, and he framed the creation of the new church with strong polemical political language, Hmm. very much a rejection of Russia, of Russian domination, a rejection of Putin, a rejection of the Russian army. Hmm. He even included a rejection of the leader of the Russian church, Patriarch Kirill. So in this sense, this was very much an event that Russians viewed as as a serious act of betrayal that figured prominently, certainly wasn't the only factor or even the dominant factor, but it figured quite prominently as one in an important series of events that Russians viewed as uh, uh, separatistic and even radical. Hmm. That's very helpful information. I want to jump and talk about um, the the power of the Russian Orthodox Church. You describe at length in your book how the Russian Orthodox Church and its leader in particular has justified the war against Ukraine. Could you talk a bit about how the Russian Orthodox Church has justified this invasion and what significance you see that having? The justification of the invasion came fairly quickly, just a few days after the Putin announced the so-called special military operation. The, what happened was, again, the original focal point was this region of Donbass, and it was a sermon given on the Sunday that is traditionally the beginning of Lent in the Orthodox Church. The sermon was given before sort of that moment, but it's something that people recognize as as a turning point in seasons. Lent is about to begin. And so in his sermon in the cathedral in Moscow on that Sunday, the leader of the Russian church, Patriarch Kirill, identified the war that Ukraine was raging in Donbass as a war on the Orthodox faith and on Christianity because they were forcing the people of Donbass to have gay parades and that they were using this violence and aggression uh, against the people of Donbass. This goes back to Putin's comment that a genocide is being committed there, which has been repeated, by the way, by the Russian ambassador to the United Nations over and over and over again without evidence. Hmm. Patriarch Kirill essentially echoes this theme that that they're using violence to force this and the people of Donbass who are resisting it. And it is therefore the duty of the Russian Federation to to defend these people. Hmm. But what, what Kirill did is he, he essentially created this into a much larger meta-narrative. He turns it into a, a war that's being played out in the heavens as well. Hmm. So you have the devil and his minions fighting against the angels and God. He, he refers to it as a, as a metaphysical war. So the war on the ground is a reflection or even an icon of the war that's playing out, that, that's an assault against God and, and against the values of God's kingdom. Hmm. And that Russia has this responsibility. And it comes out in a variety of ways, usually in his sermons, he depicts it as a sacred duty to defend the fatherland. Wow. But there's even within it an attempt to defend the Ukrainian people from their own government. And this is this is really kind of a sad irony 
as I, I would describe it as a sad irony. Yeah. Because we mentioned before that the Russian Orthodox Church had maintained control in Ukraine. And that particular group of Orthodox Christians, they attempted to separate themselves from the Russian Church. They even asked, they even made the public claim that the Russian Church has no right to represent them or to speak for them in public forums, especially the United Nations. Hmm. And yet, Patriarch Kirill frequently includes the defense of these long-suffering Orthodox Christians in Ukraine who are being assaulted by their heirs to the Bolshevik government as justifying the use of the Russian army and the invasion and the defense of the Russian people. Hmm. He refers to it as a sacred duty, and he even at one point repeated something that he had uttered a long time ago that a Russian soldier who dies on the battlefield is saved in heaven because the blood that is sacrificed for his brother automatically warrants his salvation, which caused a lot of controversy. It's kind of an old religious idea, but it's the kind of emotional appeal that, you know, is is often used for religious leaders to, to really get their hooks into to tug at people's emotions to say that what we're doing is necessary it's important mm-hmm. you should send your son to the military academy and then the church even a few years ago built a cathedral just outside of moscow that's devoted just to the russian armed forces wow you know it has symbols of the soviet era it has murals and mosaics of the heroes of the war. And so there's a whole cult of war that Patriarch Kirill and the leaders of the Russian church have supported at various levels for some time now. Hmm. And now it's kind of reaching its peak with them using the pulpit, essentially, to justify the invasion, saying we have to do it. It is our sacred duty to defend the fatherland from these assaults and also to defend Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're kind of assuming this mantle of it's our time to defend Christianity from these assaults. And mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with values. Right. Right. Well, since they are positioning themselves as defending Christianity, I have some questions about the war and Orthodox Christianity more broadly. In your book, you describe Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 as creating a quote-unquote earthquake in the broader Orthodox Christian world. How so? What do you mean by saying it created an earthquake? What happened with the invasion is because, really, I'll focus on one point in particular. It's not, the Russians were aiming their missiles and having the invading armies attack everywhere. So it wasn't only churches of these sort of, you know, new churches that were created by Constantinople that were being targeted. Missiles struck the churches that were part that, that were part of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. Soldiers who belonged to that church that were under the Russian Orthodox Church were killed and were fighting Russians. Hmm. And the Ukrainians essentially cried out, even the ones that were uh, had been part of the Russian Orthodox Church, saying, this is a grave injustice. Yeah. 
And uh, another example is that 400 of their priests took a very bold stand and begged the other Orthodox churches to do something to hold Patriarch Kirill accountable for, for the message that he was sending from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. They made a public demands. And the problem is that a lot of these church leaders just don't know how to navigate these waters. Uh, really, the only one that's come out and been harshly critical of the patriarch of the Russian church has been the leader of the church in Constantinople, Patriarch mm-hmm. Bartholomew. But many of the other churches have been kind of cautious. Many of them have called for their people to donate for humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Many of them have been critical of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But so far, none of them have called Patriarch Kirill, with the exception of Patriarch Bartholomew, to accountability. Hmm. And this has scandalized and offended many of the faithful of the churches. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's causing an earthquake for 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 that reason. Some people are scandalized. They're saying this is a horrible humanitarian catastrophe where Orthodox people are fighting and killing Orthodox people. Mm-hmm. Something needs to be done. We need to hold people accountable. But the other part of it is that there are people also outside of Russia who believe that meta narrative that is coming from both the Kremlin and also the Russian Orthodox Church, that the, this defense of the fatherland is actually necessary. Hmm. You know, they essentially believe this propaganda that's coming from the Kremlin. And so that's the reason that it's an earthquake, is because essentially a unity that was already somewhat fragile within the whole Orthodox Church is currently really being shaken to its foundations. Yeah. And it's a shaking of the foundations with the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an Orthodox country attacking and invading and sending missiles into and kidnapping children from a country where the majority of its citizens self-identify as Orthodox. Mm-hmm. That is creating an earthquake and shaking the foundations of that fragile unity. Well, then, that, for our last question, I, I think it would make sense then to ask you what steps you think Orthodox churches and Orthodox Christians around the world could possibly take that might have some effect towards bringing an end to the war, if you think that's at all possible. Yes. So everyone can do their part. Even the smallest part counts. And I think that for Orthodox people, something that's essential, and, and this really applies at a global level, hmm. is, is to consider sources of information, especially these meta-narratives. Hmm. Challenge this message that Ukraine and Russia are one people, that there's no such thing as Ukrainians like Putin claims. Putin claims that Lenin invented the Ukrainian nation, which which is a preposterous hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. And it's been debunked in public forums by scholars who specialize uh, on this matter. But within the church, they're outside of Ukraine, there is no real study of what is the church in Ukraine, what does religion in Ukraine look like, at least at the seminary level. And the church can do a lot to essentially invite a public education to basically say, you know, we're not going to just uphold 
colonialism in the church, this notion that the Russian Orthodox Church is good enough for Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. We're going to actually look at this matter and try to hear the Ukrainian side, hear their grievances, understand why they want their own independent church. And doing that, being willing to learn someone's side of the story that has not been told because they have been discriminated against, because they have been oppressed, because they have been muted, Hmm. To invite that conversation to say we want to learn is resisting colonialism. Hmm. Another part of it I think that's important is that the Russian church in particular has essentially taken the, the real persecution and oppression that the Russian church suffered during the Soviet regime. I, I certainly do not question that by any means many believers died and were oppressed and and had their religious rights violated. That's certainly true. But they've taken that and created it into a, a we're always the victim campaign. Mm -hmm. And in this particular war, the way that it's playing out, it is Russia invading Ukraine. It is Russia attacking Ukraine. Mm -hmm. It is the Russian church supporting the invasion of Ukraine. Russia cannot play the victim card here. Mm -hmm. And Orthodox people, because of their religious devotion to the cult of the martyrs, to really the Soviet legacy of persecution of Orthodoxy, not only in Russia, but in Bulgaria and Romania and Serbia and in other countries, uh, they, they tend to be sympathetic to this notion of, hey, we're the victim. Hmm. And to try to see this in a different light of this time, the Orthodox people aren't the victim. They're the aggressors. Yeah. Would be an important, bold, and necessary step, I think, on the part of the people. And then, finally, one of the most important problems is that the Orthodox people of Ukraine have been at odds with one another because of circumstances that were largely created by people who were outside of Ukraine. Hmm. And I think that the that one thing that Orthodox people that are outside of Ukraine and Russia could do is to essentially say, we want to support all of you. Sometimes what you'll see is statements made by Orthodox churches that say, we're going to support one church in Ukraine or the Ukrainian Orthodox church, the one that had been part of the Russian church. Hmm. And I think a necessary step is for Orthodox leaders to say, we're not going to be cautious anymore. We're going to be bold. We are here to support you, to find ways that you can find common ground. Maybe you can come and gather in our churches. Maybe we can facilitate a meeting of your leaders or educate your seminarians in our schools. Maybe we can you know, play facilitator to commune, to share worship to create space where you can meet one another without being under the watchful eye of this or that governmental or external figure. The Orthodox churches outside of Ukraine and Russia really haven't taken steps like that, but I believe that they have the means to do so and the mechanism to do so. Hmm. To date, they haven't had the courage to do so yet. Yeah. And I think the time has come for them to take a bold, courageous step to say, we're not going to just go along and look the other way anymore. We're not going to support demonization of the other. Yeah. We're going to call for support of all Orthodox in Ukraine and really, truly all the people of Ukraine.
Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, thank you for that and for all of your important work that you're doing on this conflict. Uh, it's uh, greatly appreciated by me and, and I'm sure many others. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Nicholas Denisenko. You can find his article, Ukraine's Orthodox Churches as a Battleground in Russia's Invasion, in the Revealer's November issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of his new book, The Church's Unholy War, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine and Orthodoxy at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. This is our last episode in 2023. We will be back with a new season of brand new episodes at the end of January 2024, starting with a series of episodes that focus on religion and politics leading up to the 2024 U.S. presidential election. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Augusta Thompson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.